think it's built into our DNA fashion, that the idea to make things special, long before people could weave, probably even before people were wearing, you know, animal skins and leather, they were painting and tattooing their bodies to make themselves special. Welcome to Fashion Cast, the fashion industry's premier podcast where we explore all things fashion. From designers and the latest trends to sustainability and breaking fashion news, we keep you informed. Now, enjoy the show with your hosts, Michael Gloucester and me, Christine Tuckta. Welcome to the latest episode of Fashion Cast with fashion icon Dr. Valerie Steele, director and chief curator of the museum at FIT, and one of the most respected fashion historians in the world. A prolific writer, Dr. Steele has authored or co-authored more than two dozen fashion books on a wide range of topics from the history of the corset to the influence of the color pink. She's also produced over 25 exhibitions, multiple fashion symposiums, and given countless speeches regarding all aspects of fashion history and style. Dr. Steele, who earned her PhD at Yale, was once described as the Freud of fashion by Susie Menkes, a British journalist, and is often sought out as a fashion intellectual. She has been selected by the Business of Fashion 500, the people shaping the global fashion industry every year since 2014. Dr. Steele is joining FashionCast from New York City via Skype. Welcome to FashionCast, Dr. Steele. Thank you. It's an honor to have you on our show. So you mentioned you entered the world of fashion after listening to a fellow student at Yale give a dissertation on the corset. Please describe your epiphany and exactly why do you believe the corset is the single most controversial garment in the history of fashion? That's a very interesting story. You know, people talk about how their life might be changed by reading a book. In this case, my life was changed by somebody else reading two articles in a scholarly journal. <laughs> that was our sign. I don't even remember what I read. I assume it was something about the French Revolution. But my classmate, Judy Coffin, looked at a scholarly feminist journal, Signs, and they had two articles about the Victorian corset. One that said it was oppressive to women and dangerous, and the other that said it was sexually liberating. Hmm. And it was just as though a light bulb went on in my mind, and I realized fashion's part of culture. I can study fashion history. And that changed my whole life. From then on, every class I took, my doctoral dissertation, everything was about fashion. Um, I did a chapter, a big chapter in my doctoral dissertation on corsetry, and then another chapter on the corset for my book Fetish. And finally, 20 years <laughs> later, I did a whole book on the corset, a cultural history of the corset, in which I argue that it's the most controversial garment in the history of fashion. Because for hundreds of years, there's been so much controversy and fighting about whether it was bad or whether it was good, whether it was bad for women's health and their bodies, whether it was um, keeping women down, oppressing them, and whether women were victims of a patriarchal society that forced them to wear corsets. Of course, there's nothing in any one garment that makes it good or bad. Hmm. It's how it's used and how it's perceived. So in the 400 years that women wore corsets, um, it wasn't that men were forcing them to wear it. 
but that the society valued certain things like um, an upright posture mm -hmm. and a, a look of respectability, but also forced women to be wanting to look as though they were beautiful and young. So for many years, women defended using the corset because they saw it had what they saw as good sides as well as bad sides. So women were pressuring women. Well, often male doctors would say, stop wearing it. Oh. And women would say, don't tell us what to do. We'll design a better corset. Or, you know, it's up to us to figure out what we wear. Yeah. Some women didn't like corsets and they spoke out against them. Mm. But other women kept wearing it just the way today some people will speak out against high heels. But many women keep wearing them, at least on dates or on some occasions. It made them feel good. They make them feel good. Yeah, exactly. I wore I wore one a couple times, and it's definitely uncomfortable. I would say more more than heels. I, I would wear heels over a corset any day. Wow, that is breaking <laughs> news. But, breaking news. <laughs> yeah, I wore it a couple times, <laughs> and I could I couldn't breathe, and then that's I didn't even it. know that was they it. still made them. My God, okay. Yeah. This was a yeah. many years ago. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It was trendy again at one point, uh, maybe twenty years ago, when I was living in Las Vegas. Yeah, it was a little it bit comes in and out. Yes, every yes. Two years of high fashion. Yeah, um, but the thing is, really, my students used to say, "Well, when and why did women stop wearing corsets?" And I used to tease them and say, "Well, they never stopped. They just internalized corsets through <laughs> diet, exercise, true. And, you know, plastic surgery." That's cut. true. That's they true. Wanted to look younger, more beautiful, but they were no longer willing to wear an uncomfortable garment that realistically just push the fat around. Yeah, it and I'm sure it really. was much tighter back in the day than, yeah, it was much tighter. tighter. Yeah. But it, it, that varied a lot. So women, again, have taken the short end of the stick here, even in fashion, and that went on for hundreds of years. It's just hundreds amazing. Years, yeah. I wanted to ask you quickly, though, I think the part of the bigger story is here, how does a doctoral student have an epiphany and then become one of the world's renowned fashion curators? You know, because mm -hmm. this whole this whole epiphany, how many people have had an epiphany and then did nothing about it? Mm -hmm. You know, and I've done that myself. You think, oh, that's a great idea. I should go down that path. So the fact that you followed through and then, of course, worked your finger to the bones for 30 years and then became, you know, this, this star curator director of the museum at FIT is amazing. And what was the original intent when you went to Yale? What were you going to study? Do you remember? I was going to study modern European cultural and intellectual history. And I did. I just figured out that fashion was a part of cultural <laughs> okay. and intellectual history. Oh. And it was a part that hadn't really been studied before. It took a lot of work. I mean, for, for more than 10 years, I was unemployable as a professor. So what we wanted to ask, I, what I wanted to ask is because when you do the research on FIT and you find, you find out that FIT is one of the top, it's always ranked in the top fashion schools in the world, consistently in the top three, year after year after year. Then if you take a deeper dive and look at the museum at FIT, it's always ranked in the top 10, you know, with Yves Saint Laurent and Gucci and Balenciaga also. So how does that influence your kind of day-to-day -day work and management of what you're doing? It's got to give you a lot of, you know, competence in terms of who's working with you and 
the ability to recruit, you know, particular students. It's just got to be a different kind of mindset at the school and at the museum, is it not? Yes. I mean, I think that although FIT does more than fashion, you know, it says art, design, business, technology, it's famous for fashion. And it means that people there understand that fashion is significant, that it's not just some frivolous thing that doesn't matter. And that means we've got thousands of students who are a potential audience, thousands of alumni and fashion professionals in New York, plus all the tourists and neighborhood people who come just because they're people who are interested in fashion. So the fact that, you know, the museum has 50,000 items and then you're competing, I don't know if you're competing, but certainly, you know, the Met is right down the street. They've got 35,000 items. There's other, obviously, Parsons and Pratt. Is there some kind of competition going on, too? Or, or are there any jealousy? Or is everyone kind of collaborating and kind of just working together in New York? Well, I think it's competition. And I think that in any field, competition is good because it makes you, you sort of pump up your game. Um, there are other great fashion and design schools in New York, like Parsons and Pratt. Of course, the Met is much bigger and richer than we are. They're one of the great <laughs> universal museums, and we're like little David to their Goliath. <laughs> but we still do a lot of shows. We do more exhibitions than they do, and we definitely have a public. We're free, and a lot of people are interested in our shows and our publications and public programs. How many square feet is the museum at FIT? The galleries are about 6,000 square feet. But then there are also the two big storerooms, our closets for all the clothes and accessories. And then there are offices and a conservation lab and an exhibition lab. It's a large part of the building. We had to raise millions of dollars to upgrade our climate control and, and fire protection for all of the storerooms for the clothes. That was a major task. Now it looks beautiful. We got to visit someday. Oh, yeah, absolutely. No, I've been by there. I haven't mm. been in. Mm. And, of course, I know people who, who go there regularly for the exhibition. Because you have an exhibition almost every six months or something, right? We have four major exhibitions a year of fashion, mm. plus all the student and faculty shows that we help with both in the museum and around campus. So, um, yeah, we have two giant ones at the biggest gallery and then two in our fashion history gallery. But it's got to be a huge advantage to have this fashion museum at the fashion school, where a lot of the schools just don't have that resource. So that also has got to be a draw. And I'm trying, I keep trying to think how FIT keeps getting to the top. But that, I mean, you're a key part of that. I think so, because it's such an advantage for fashion students to be able to look at the past of fashion as they try and figure out what the future of fashion is going to look like. Given your leading role in the heart of the fashion universe, what advice would you give to freshman students entering FIT? I would say that, um, of course, work hard and try and seize opportunities to learn new things, but also try and, and be nice to yourself. It's so hard <laughs> and stressful being a student. You know, once a student said to me, sometimes she just came into our galleries and sat down and looked at the exhibition just to remind herself why she came to FIT in the first place. Sometimes there's so much work, and a lot of our kids, you know, are working other jobs while they're also in school. Be nice to yourself, just like you'd be nice to your best friend. 
and try and speak up and get help if you feel like something's too much for you. And I'm sure it could be overwhelming. Yeah, so that's great advice. And what about the seniors? What do you what advice would you give them on the way out? I would tell seniors to um, remember that you want to be talented and and experienced and good at your job. And FIT is really good at giving you the training and experience to do that. But you also have to be nice and collegial and work well with others. It's just a fact that people are not going to hire you if mm. the place where you had your internships at Oh, she was just terrible to oh. work with. Well, your teacher's right. Yes, good at the class, period. And not don't enthuse about how wonderful you were. You really have to try and be a nice person, a good colleague. Be a people person. Be a people person, exactly. Great advice. I agree 100%. Yeah, well, yeah. fashion. No one's going to want to work with you if you're not, you know, easy to work with. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it's it's not a fashion lab. You're not you're not going to, into a lab with three people and hiding in the corner. Fashion's out in front of everybody and everything. So that's and yeah. it's a big team thing. In fact, that's another thing I'd tell students when they came in. Think about how fashion is a matter of teams working together. A designer mm-hmm. has a whole team. That's probably where your first job will be. But then the designer and the team work with publicists, they work with photographers, they work with editors. Mm. Try and see if you can make your own network at school of other students who would help you get your things in front of the public. I don't say you have to have a boyfriend who's a photographer, but it helps to know photographers. <laughs> it helps to know people who can write about fashion. Yeah, well, that's you good You have to advice. be good at networking then yeah. as well. Networking, yeah. yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, you know, during COVID... You know, obviously everything closed down in New York and around the country and so forth. But this is one of the reasons I was attracted to the museum at FIT, because when I was kind of trolling around and looking at the museum and looked at one of the exhibitions, you know, then I looked at my watch and it was like two hours later. And I'm like, this has never happened. So you've been able to catch eyeballs and keep eyeballs on that site and it's just one exhibition after another, after another. And some of them have been archived, I get it. But even the student exhibitions. So when, when did you guys realize, look, it's COVID, it's lockdown, we got to keep working. Let's just go all in. It's all going to be virtual. And I, I, I hesitate to say, but it almost seems like it may be a new platform or a different platform that, that can really attract other types of viewers for the museum. It is a new platform. We've always done specific websites for each of our exhibitions, or at least for the last 10 or 15 years, for a long time. Um, And some of our programs we put online on YouTube. But about a month after we were sent home from FIT, when we realized we weren't going to be coming back right away, we thought we just have to make a real pivot to online and do all our programs online and start reviving and bringing up new ideas for exhibitions that we can put online. And so we did that. And it was so hard at first because we were doing these programs at home on our computer. And I'm the least Mm. technological person (laughs) in the world. And and having to do it at home, interviewing designers from across the world. But then we found we were reaching thousands more people than we had reached when it Mm -hmm. was all in person. Oh, yes. This was something we'd had hints of before, but now we really learned everything has to be online. You have to have that component of everything because 
then you can reach people around the world. We sort of knew that, but this really made it come home to us. <laughs> That's what Rocco was saying. Rocco Gagliotti. Yeah, yeah. About the, the founder uh, of FNL. Are you familiar of, with FNL? Fashion yeah. news lifestyle, mm -hmm. right. Yeah. But, but what was interesting is when you go to the museum physically, when you go to any museum and you see a piece of art, and then, of course, there's a little explanation on the wall next to it, and then you just find yourself, the print's so small, you don't want to read everyone, you kind of want to, you're kind of absorbed by the art in the room. But when it's online, I found myself really digging deep into those explanations about the piece. And that's why I think you, you just keep going from exhibition to exhibition. It, it was really fascinating. So it's, it's a different experience is my point. It is. And we've discovered too that people love podcasts. So if we do an interview live on video, we'll often revive it for a podcast because other people like to just listen while they're out walking or something. Um, and because of COVID, we thought we should, when we get ready to come back, which hopefully will be soon, we're going to have smaller, shorter uh, labels so people don't linger over them too long. But we're going to have longer, more extensive ones online and many more pictures. We put hundreds more pictures on our e-museum uh, that's associated with it. So you can go in and say, I want to see all the Chanel dresses at the museum at FIT. And now you can call it up mm. more easily. I could do both. Yeah, that's no, really that's cool. brilliant. Yeah, that's, yeah, that's great. Yeah, brilliant. Speaking of that, I'm just swerving for one moment because I was reading the the Museum at Fit magazine and they talked about, I don't know if you, Christine, recently watched Halston on Netflix, the miniseries. So I don't know. Did you see Everybody's it? Everybody's watching that. Yeah. Really? Oh, my God. Is it great? Halston? It's just brilliant. They're so good at that. Netflix, I just got to give them kudos because they really have got that, that miniseries down. Yes. But I was not surprised, I guess, but it was fun to read that the museum at FIT, one of your former students or alumna was actually instrumental in working with Netflix on Halston. Because hmm. don't you guys have a pretty good collection of Halston? Where? World's best. We have the world's best collection wow. of Halston. Every time the company sold, the new team comes in and looks at the archival fashion for inspiration. <laughs> Wow. Yeah, isn't it? So here's I the gal who couldn't, who had no job for ten years, but now she's, yeah, elbowing. She just up, kept, she yeah, just kept plugging away, shouldering up to yeah. Uh, Hollywood. Yeah, it's unbelievable. Wow. Yeah, no, that's it's incredible, and it's a great miniseries. It really. I gotta is. check it out. Yeah, I had no idea. Far from having no job, I have multiple <laughs> part-time jobs. Worse. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, yeah, that's that's right. I know Christine feels that way sometimes. Mm -hmm. You have a few jobs going on. So you know, speaking of that, you know, it seems like you're almost a YouTube star. By the way, you brought that up earlier, but <laughs> so there's there's plenty to watch of Dr. Valerie Steele on YouTube. But the impression I get when I look at you and listen to you about it's beyond this passion that you have. There seems to be some kind of DNA mission about it all. Is that true or if I'm just overreading? Is it just a passion for the industry? It seems to me to be in this industry this long and this successful and then this down to earth. It seems there's a mission, you know, I don't want to, I don't, I don't know if it's a Mother Teresa yeah. thing, but there's a mission going <laughs> yeah. on. 
Is that it right? It goes deeper than that. I think you're right. I never thought of that before, but I really believe that fashion is important. It's really significant culturally and psychologically for individuals. And I want to, you know, inspire and educate people about fashion so that they get a sense of how significant it is. And now as I'm getting older, I'm getting this great team of younger museum professionals and students, and I'm really keen on trying to help them create careers for themselves in fashion or fashion museum world. So I think that it is kind of a mission. I never thought of it that way before, but I think you're right. Good observation, Michael. Yeah. <laughs> you are mission-driven, there's no <laughs> doubt about it, and don't let anyone say yeah. anything. It's no passing fad for you, that's for sure. <laughs> In your opinion, what constitutes the current American style? Well, it's interesting because there's no one style anymore. The way mm. there used to be, you know, when there was Dior and everybody mm. wore new look. And, you know, then there was Mary Quant and everyone was in a mini skirt. Now there's multiple fashions that go on all the time. I did notice even that. Within, even within America, I mean, if you go to Europe, they go, oh, American fashion, it's blue jeans. You go, not really. I mean, America sort of invented blue jeans and were famous for sportswear, but there are young American designers who are doing evening wear, who are doing work clothes, who are doing various different styles. I think what's distinctive about America is the diversity of the styles that are on display, and yet the, the kind of monolithic structure of the industry, which is hard because it's a mass fashion industry, and yet a lot of the most talented designers are small, independent designers. And that's getting harder and harder for them to survive. So fortunately, the Council of Fashion Designers of America is realizing that they have to do more to help smaller, younger, um, and often, you know, black and minority designers are not getting the capitalization that they need. That is a whole different show, yeah. Dr. Steele. <laughs> it's such an important topic. Mm -hmm. And it's something that we've noticed over the last couple of years. I don't know how you rectify the, it seems like, the, the, the industry is so big, right? This, this almost $3 trillion industry around the world. But I keep, we keep asking who's driving the bus? Who's, where is the leadership? And it's, you know, when you go to the CFDA or, you know, when you go to the London Fashion Council, when you go to Paris, they're really representative of the designer class and it's not the whole industry. So it's a very fractured industry. So we could do a whole show just on the leadership part, but that's a very interesting observation. The economic structure too. I mean, the fact that you've got the big luxury conglomerates and the big fast fashion conglomerates, again, internationally, not just in America, the independents are getting squished. And we'll be right back with our guest after this short break from our sponsor, Omay Organics. Hi, I'm Christine. You may know me as co-host of Fashion Cast, but I'm also the founder and CEO of Omay Organics. I believe skincare should be simple. Our hyaluronic cream is all you need to nourish your skin morning and night. Sourced from the highest quality organic ingredients from around the world and manufactured in an FDA facility right here in the USA, this incredible cream works to firm, deeply moisturize, and smooth the appearance of your skin. Please visit omeorganics.com and use promo code FASHIONCAST to receive a 15% discount off your first purchase. 
and you will receive our monthly newsletter free. Now, back to the show. So, Dr. Steele, we were just talking about the American style, and you talked about there's a lot of different options, and you like that part of it. You know, there is this other piece to the industry, you know, and I think you mentioned a little bit about fast fashion. So how has fast fashion impacted not only the fashion industry, but the culture too? Because I think it's had an impact on obviously the fashion industry, but I think it's had a kind of a devastating impact on the culture too. But I'm curious to hear what you have to say about that. I think fast fashion has been really, really problematic. When it first started to begin, people thought in terms of, oh, it's the democratization of fashion. You know, everybody can catch on to the latest trend right away. But in fact, it's it's been driving fashion towards producing more and more cheap stuff with more and more environmental degradation and human exploitation. Uh, and it's it's even impacted the, the, our psychology that we no longer see something and go, oh, that was beautiful. I would like to get something like that, you know, eventually when that reaches the store. We want it now. We're sort of being conditioned to be like badly behaved two-year-olds. <laughs> yeah, you know, I want it now. Fix me uh-huh, now. Yeah. And, then, and then throwing it away like a spoiled child so throwing it on the floor and say, I'm not interested anymore. And so piles and piles of often things that can't even be biodegraded. They're just sort of there forever. And when you when you say, okay, we're just throwing it away, but some of that's, you know, you're looking at the new types of fashion shows coming up where you can order the apparel as it's coming across the stage on your phone. I mean, so it's not as if people don't recognize what's happening, but they're really, again, they don't care. It seems like the fashion, this is where the fashion and the underbelly of the fashion industry, you know? Yes. And many young people will say that they, and in some sense, they do sincerely feel they care about it, but the fashion world has been so divided now into very expensive clothes Mm. and very cheap clothes. Mm. And as more people can only afford the very cheap clothes, they buy them. And then they might say, Oh, I won't throw it away. I'll give it to a thrift store. Well, there are mountains of warehouses full of these clothes. They can't be sold in a thrift store at home. Mm-hmm. They're sent in huge trailer containers to Africa and to other poor places where they destroy the industry there. So all the tailors and seamstresses and fashion designers there go out of business because the country's been swamped with really cheap or free junk fashion from the West. So this yeah. is a big problem. A huge problem. Bigger than I thought. Yeah, junk That's fashion, why sustainable like fashion it. is so popular now. You know, and, and when we had junk food and fast food, people said, oh, maybe I shouldn't eat that all the time because it'll make me sick. But when the clothes don't make you personally sick, it's hard to remember that they are hurting other people and other parts of the world. That's true. Right. And there's a whole history of, you know, private equity funds and Wall Street and investment and how this came about and like uh, as you mentioned earlier the conglomerates but in terms of fast fashion do you think that this the technology now that's entering the industry and the wearables there's a lot of technology I don't just mean a watch or something on your shoe or that lights up you know you're talking about different types of apparel that 
will regulate your body temperature or, or, or it will become cooler and that kind it seems to me that would be more difficult just to throw away. So are there, are you aware of some of these novel fabrics and smart clothes and tracking who's making what via blockchain and that kind of thing? Well, there certainly are novel kinds of materials and clothes, like the ones that will check your temperature, your heartbeat. Mostly those are only useful for patients, you know, in hospitals. Uh, we don't really want to know particularly <laughs> how heartbeat is going or, you know, they used to advertise, this clothes will turn orange when you sweat. And I thought, oh, <laughs> The military makes a lot of advances because they want, like, exoskeletons that will help wounded soldiers escape from the battlefield. That's one kind of practical thing. But I think in many ways the most interesting ones are the ones that focus on new ways of making clothes and new materials that are biodegradable. So since one of the big environmental problems is mountains of plastic or polyester clothes, maybe you can make biodegradable things out of new materials, whether it's algae, bacteria, orange peels. There are all kinds of things that you can make clothes out of. Um, mushroom leather, so instead of... Uh, hmm. You know, killing animals and making leather, you can make mushroom leather. Mm. That's promising. Mm. And then, of course, the idea that you could do 3D printing of clothes. But that's a two-edged sword, because if you did that, it's true you would eliminate the exploitation, which goes in. Poor people have always been the ones hired to sew the clothes, and etc. But what happens to the millions of workers, mostly women around the world, and that maybe an exploitative job, but it is a job. So how do you then find new and better jobs for those people if you eliminate the old cut and sew way of making clothes? It's a really tricky problem. And I think COVID demonstrated part of the issues related to that because the, the fashion industry kind of just, you know, shut the lights off for, for a year. They did. And a lot, of, a lot of those jobs won't come back. They won't come back. And the big companies didn't even pay those poor women in Bangladesh, you know, even for the clothes they'd already made and shipped. Wow. So it's really, it's really not a happy situation. Mm -hmm. You are one of the few people that I think we've met, and we've talked about this many times, and we've talked to authors too. And of course, you are a very accomplished author, but you seem to be really up on the other issues related to the industry. Mm -hmm. So that's very attractive, I think, from a podcast standpoint yes. or just from a reporting standpoint that we may be able to access, you know, your opinion or your office's opinion with regard to some of these other very, very important issues. You're, in other words, I'm saying it seems like you're a leader in the industry, but you don't know it yet. Mm -hmm. She is, yeah. <laughs> well, she I, cares I more. Not, I'm not a scholar in that. You'd have to talk to someone, you know, like Dana Thomas, who wrote Fashionopolis, who did the research. I'm just repeating her conclusions, but she's the yeah. scholar in that. Yeah, well, mm -hmm. definitely. Well, we'll have to definitely uh, reach out to her. So given your knowledge, your experience, your standing um, with really within the global industry, from your perspective, what currently is happening in fashion that troubles you, but also inspires you? I would say the things that trouble me are the bad impact of the fashion industry as it's now structured, the exploitation and the degradation of the environment, cruelty to animals and to human workers. 
And what encourages me is the tremendous creativity of people throughout the fashion world. There are just so many talented designers and stylists and photographers and writers. It's, it's a, the issue is going to be, how can we keep the good parts of fashion while minimizing the bad parts of fashion? I think this is a question that many, um, many fashion students are asking themselves today because they know this is something that they feel passionate about. They love fashion, but they don't want to be contributing to, um, to bad things. So is that the future of fashion? It's really this push to figure out how we're going to resolve these other issues and still do something aesthetically? Yes, I think aesthetically and, and culturally, psychologically, I think it's built into our DNA, mm. fashion, that the idea to make things special, long before people could weave, probably even before people were wearing, you know, animal skins and leather, they were painting and tattooing their bodies to make themselves special. They were drilling holes and shells and wearing it on a necklace. We want to make ourselves special, mm-hmm. make our, and because of that, we've developed weaving and dress and fashion and adornment and all the rest of it, which makes us significant to ourselves and to others in so many ways, attractive, and it just makes us able to express who we are. It's a kind of nonverbal communication. Yeah, that's amazing. And that's a great, upbeat way to end the show. Dr. Valerie Steele, it's been an honor and a pleasure. Thank you so much for appearing on FashionCast. Thank you. This was such a pleasure. Have a wonderful day. You too. You Thank too. you, Dr. Thanks. Steele. Thanks for listening. If you like what you've heard, please subscribe, tell a friend, and leave a review on Apple Podcasts. You can also visit us on our website at fashioncast.com podcast.com.